open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. This is a weird one, you guys. <laughs> uh, as always, if there are any questions, um, feel free to text them to the text number and we will take a look at them at the end. So if you recall, when we looked at the story of Adam and Eve, I said that modern people tend to see uh, the fall, what we call it, as the problem with the world. The reason there's brokenness and sin and death is because of what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. If you would have asked a first century Jew what the problem with the world was, they would have also said Genesis chapter 3, but they would have added two other events. This event in Genesis chapter 6 and another event in chapter 11. And so Today, we're going to take a look at the second step that the world takes towards sin and brokenness and death. We're going to focus on the first four verses. We, we read through, the, through verse 8 just for context, but we're going to pick up in verse 5 again next week. So if there's anything in there that we, we miss, it's because we're going to hit it again. But we see this, this, this little story that just kind of comes out of nowhere. It's not really, we don't talk about it a lot. It's just a few verses about these sons of God and these daughters of men and these people called the Nephilim. And it's just kind of weird. But the first thing I want you to recognize here, we're going to talk about who the sons of God are, but the sons of God are having an Eden moment. If we remember back when Eve saw the fruit, that it was good, and she took it. Remember those words? She saw it was good, and she took it. Well, the sons of God, they do the same thing. They see the daughters of mankind, that they were beautiful, beautiful and good. That's the same Hebrew word. They saw the daughters of mankind, that they were good, and they took them. And so the author of Genesis, Moses is going, hey, pick up on this, you guys. This is the same kind of problem that we saw in chapter three. And it's a big deal because as we read, it immediately is followed by God going, you know what? I just can't live with these people anymore. I'm, I'm going to have to start over. The, whatever happens in the first verses of Genesis six is so bad that it is the reason why we have the flood story, which we'll get through in the next several weeks. So who are the sons of God? There's, there's three basic views. Um, one view is called the Sethite view, and that says that the sons of God are the godly sons of Seth. Remember, Seth is Adam's son, and, and we traced his genealogy through chapter 5. And, but they, they were the chosen line, but what they did was they sinfully intermarried with the daughters of Cain, the cursed line. And so that's what this problem is, is that the, the, the holy chosen line is contaminating itself with the line of Cain. There's a few problems with this view. Um, first of all, it doesn't say that. It doesn't talk about the daughters of Cain. Um, there's nothing really connecting the sons of God to Seth. And it doesn't explain this whole Nephilim thing, which we're going to get to later. A second view says that the sons of God were ancient kings. And, and the, the sin that is being described here is that they are entering into forced polygamous marriages with women. They're just taking women for their harems. Again, this has the same problems as the Sethite view. It doesn't really explain what the Nephilim are. It isn't really connected to the text that well. And it's hard to understand why just run-of-the-mill polygamy causes the flood. We see that throughout scripture and throughout history. It's, it's evil, it's wicked, but it doesn't really seem to be that wicked. The third view, which I'm going to show my cards here, this is the one that I think makes the most sense, is the sons of God are divine spiritual beings. They are, maybe you call them angels, 
and they cross a boundary between heaven and earth and engage in sexual relationships with human women. And their offspring, the results of these unions are these individuals called the Nephilim, the powerful men of old, the famous men. And the crazy thing about this this view, the, the, the main problem with it is it's super weird. Right? Even, even thinking about it, like, really? That's, that's what this says? That there's these, these beings that for some reason decide human women are attractive and assume human form and marry these women and have half-human, half-angel hybrid children? Yeah, that's super weird. But it's pretty simply the straightforward reading of the text. And we find that this isn't strange to the original audience. This is all over Mesopotamian folk history. The idea of divine beings cohabitating with human beings and producing half-man, half-god hybrids, it's a key feature of Mesopotamian history. Babylonian stories, Greek stories, Canaanite stories, Sumerian stories. This is all standard material. The Old Testament scholar Mike Heiser says, Mesopotamia had several versions of the story of a catastrophic flood, complete with a large boat that saves animals and humans. They include mention of a group of sages, the Apkalus, possessor of great knowledge in the period before the flood. These Apkalus were divine beings. And after the flood, offspring of the Apkalus were said to be human in descent, i.e. having a human parent, and two-thirds Apkalu, in other words, the Apkalus mated with human women and produced quasi-divine offspring. So Genesis is doing what it has been doing since the very beginning, which is interacting with what everybody understood to be true about the world at the time. And yet Moses is reinterpreting it around a biblical lens. In the Babylonian story, the Apkalus are Babylonian. And so the Babylonian culture traces itself back to this lineage of warrior kings and says, because we're connected to these divine beings, our culture is superior. Babylonian culture is better because we have a direct line to the Apkalus. But the way Moses tells the story, the sons of God stepped out of their rightful place in God's domain, transgressed a boundary set by God himself and helped to bring about the destruction of the world through their actions. These these sons of God are, are not the good guys. They're not these great kings to look up to. They're a problem. The phrase sons of God everywhere else in scripture that it comes up in the Hebrew Bible is talking about angelic beings, spiritual beings, not human, but Elohim that live in the world that God inhabits. And so the Bible just kind of throws that out there. We get four verses and then we move on to the story of Noah. Moses, Moses does this, I think, because he just assumes we all know what the cultural story is. We're all Babylonians or Greeks or Sumerians, and we're reading this, and we'll go like, obviously, that's the story that he's talking about. And then the Bible just moves on. But is there, is there more detail to this story? Can we, can we mine this for more information? Here's a quote. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal a secret plans to the empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. This is the famous opening crawl of Star Wars Episode Four, the, the text that goes across the screen. And... and at one point, uh, the Disney Corporation, who loves the money, 
they said, hey, what if we made a whole movie about that little sentence in that opening crawl? And if you've seen the movie Rogue One, you know that that's what they did. They, they built this whole movie out of just a phrase about these rebel spies that did this thing. There's a book in the ancient world that is exactly like that with reference to our text here. It, it's a book called First Enoch. It was written about 200 BC, and large parts of it are this author saying, you know what, what if we took this story in Genesis 6 and expanded it to like 89 chapters or something? I forget. But it greatly expands on the story of the sons of God in Genesis 6, and it's a very popular book around the time of Jesus. It wasn't considered the Bible or scripture, but just like we have tons of religious books that people find helpful, it was really popular. It's called First Enoch, and it's, it's slightly fictionalized because Enoch didn't write it. Enoch, you remember, was the seventh in line from Adam in Genesis 5. He was the one that only lived for 365 years and then went to be with God. So Enoch didn't write this book. It was written thousands of years later, and it's called Pseudepigrapha, which means the author of the book isn't the real author. And we, we think about that and we go, well, like, that's not okay. That's like, that's deceptive. But back in the ancient world, that was a really normal thing. You just pick somebody famous that you wanted to pretend to be and you would write pretending to be them. And everybody just kind of was okay with it. And it's like I said, it wasn't scripture, but it, and it was kind of fictional, but it was still written as like a theological treatise. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's like screw tape letters, where it's these correspondence between a senior demon and a junior demon, and they're talking about how to tempt a guy. Well, C.S. Lewis made all that up, but he still intends us to learn real spiritual truth from the book. So in First Enoch, there's about 200 of these sons of God, and they're called the Watchers. And what they do is they take human form, they marry human women, and they have children with them. Their offspring are half man, half angel, and they go about greatly increasing the sin and the violence in the world through their influence. They, they not only corrupt the bloodline with this strange half-human person, they also teach people the arts of war and magic spells and astrology. God sends his angels to capture them and they, they're captured and they're bound in chains in the center of the earth. Enoch is taken up into heaven like we read in chapter five and he's called upon as a prophet to pronounce judgment to the watchers for their sin. He's told to go to them and tell them about that they have broken God's law and that they will be imprisoned forever. So why does any of this matter to any of us this morning? Well, listen to 1 Enoch 1.9. It says, look, he comes with the myriads of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to destroy all the wicked and to convict all humanity for all the wicked deeds that they have done and the proud and hard words that wicked sinners spoke against him. And then we look at the book of Jude, which is in our Bible. And Jude 14 says, it was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. Now, there's a little bit of a translation difference there between those two verses, but the reality is Jude is quoting first Enoch in his letter. He's not only aware of it, he, he finds it useful in his correspondence with the Christians that he's writing to, to show them that false teachers, that do, uh, people who do wickedness will be judged by God. And he uses first Enoch 
to do that. This book was part of just the cultural understanding of the early church. Peter and Jude both make direct reference to the book of Enoch in their letters. Earlier in the book of Jude, we read, Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude, again, is talking about false teachers that are in the church today, and he says they're going to be just like those angels that did not stay where they belonged, but they abandoned their proper dwelling and have been chained in deep darkness, and why he connects them to Sodom and Gomorrah, they have committed sexual immorality. And so Jude is thinking of this story. Same thing in 2 Peter, we read, for if God didn't spare the angels who, who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be keep for, kept for judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the beha depraved behavior of the immoral, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. So there is this idea that the church is being persecuted by people in the Roman Empire, and they are people that are worldly, they are sexually immoral, and they despise authority. And he said, that's just like those angels back in Genesis 6 that left their proper domain, that despised the authority of God and pursued human women. And he says that they are cast into hell in 2 Peter 2.4, the word hell there is the word Tartarus, which is the only time that word is used in the Bible to, to, as, a, as a word for hell. And Tartarus is a Greek word that is specifically the place where the Titans and other fallen spiritual beings were imprisoned. So in the Greek world, there's a similar story of spiritual beings that have um, rebelled and they're being imprisoned in this place called Tartarus. And Peter uses the exact same word to talk about these angels from Genesis 6. Both Jude and Peter connect false teaching and sexual sin in the church in their day to these ideas from the book of Genesis, but through the lens of the book of Enoch. So, again, what, who cares, right? Like, what is the point of this story? We see in Genesis that the divine beings and their children called the Nephilim, they wreak havoc on the world and they accelerate its descent into the destruction of the flood. But that's not the only thing going on. If you remember the first main point of tension in the book of Genesis, we read in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Remember, God promises someone is coming, a human being is coming who will defeat the serpent and his children. One day, an offspring of Eve will come and he will save us. There's a coming conflict between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the snake. And there is a thread of human lineage that will culminate in the one true human that will destroy the serpent once and for all. So how possibly could the seed of the serpent prevent this from happening? By polluting the bloodline of humanity. Here's Mike Heiser again. 
The biblical writers draw attention to Noah's blamelessness. Scripture does not specifically exempt Noah and his family from the sinful cohabitation of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, but since the event was so heinous, it would be absurd to presume otherwise. As concepts like divine sonship begin to appear in the Bible with respect to Yahweh's people Israel, the Israelite king, and ultimately the Messiah, the theological messaging became important. Noah is in the line of Christ. At no point could it be claimed that the ultimate seed of Eve, the messianic deliverer, was the son of any Elohim besides Yahweh. See, this incursion in Genesis 6 was a plot of the enemies of God to circumvent God's plan. If, if a human being is going to save humanity, we can get in the way of that. We can be a part of the corruption of humanity. And in addition to the immediate effects, I think that was the goal. So, who are the Nephilim? The word means giants or fallen ones, depending on who you ask. And the text says that the Nephilim were on earth both in those days and after. The Nephilim are here before the flood happens and they're here after the flood happens. And we'll talk about how that could be possible later on when we talk about the flood. But if we fast forward to the book of Numbers, everyone's favorite book in the Old Testament, the people of Israel have been rescued out of Egypt and they come to the promised land, the land that God has given them to possess. And they send 12 spies into the land and the spies go throughout the whole land and they look and they come back and they report and they say, this place is awesome. They say it's flowing with milk and honey. It's fertile. It's such a beautiful place, but there's no way we can take it over. Numbers 13 says, so they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we pass through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers and we must have seemed the same to them. So they go into this land and they say, there's giants in this land. There are people here that are connected to the lineage of the Nephilim, these powerful men of old. And they mentioned the sons of Anak that comes up again in the Old Testament. And they say, because of this, there's no way we can go in here. We cannot take this promised land. And so, so God says, okay, because you do not believe that I can do this for you, I'm going to send you back into the wilderness. And you're going to wander in the wilderness to, for 40 years until all of you die and your children will be the ones that I will take into the promised land. And so then we begin to read about this in Deuteronomy, in Joshua, and modern people start to freak out a little bit because God says, I want you to go in there and I want you to kill everybody. I want, one of the words that's used is, I want you to devote them to destruction. And there's a lot of people today that are trying to figure out how to like take that out of the Bible because we don't like that part. Like that, what, that shouldn't have been in there or uh, that's what the Israelites thought God said, but didn't really say it. But there's a different way to understand this that I think makes more sense. There's a specific Hebrew idea. It's the word harem, and it means holy war. And anytime you read in your Bible that God wants a, a town or a settlement completely destroyed or to be devoted to destruction, it's that word, harem. And every time it comes up in scripture, it's always connected to the descendants of the Nephilim. God talks about the sons of Anak or the Anakim. He talks about the Rephaim, 
which is another connection to the giants, the Amorites. They're connected to these people. All of these people groups are connected throughout the Hebrew Bible to this corrupt bloodline of quasi-divine warrior kings. Listen to Joshua 11. At that time, Joshua proceeded to exterminate the Anakim from the hill country, Hebron, Debir, Anab, all the hill country of Judah and of Israel. Joshua completely destroyed them with their cities. No Anakim were left in the land of the Israelites except for some remaining in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod are Philistine cities. If you fast forward a couple hundred years and you know the story of David and Goliath, Goliath is a very large man and he is associated with the Philistines. He is a descendant of these tribes. See, the Old Testament is presenting the story of God creating a special people that would give rise to the one true human that would defeat the serpent in his continual war with God. And the conquest of Canaan, as, as distasteful as it seems and as, 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 as hard to figure out as war is, was a specific set of priorities for God to continue to destroy these corrupt beings. So this is a just just a wild story, right? Like I, I see your faces and some of you are like, what did I come to church today for? But it's, it's part of the supernatural worldview of the Bible. This is, this is the story that the Bible brings to us. And as Christians, our, our whole understanding of reality is based on this kind of stuff being real. Heiser again says this, this interpretation, the supernatural interpretation of Genesis 6 is less dramatic than the incarnation of Yahweh as Jesus Christ. How is the virgin birth of God as a man more acceptable? What isn't mind-blowing about Jesus having both a divine and a human nature fused together? All of these things are far more shocking than Genesis 6. And yet, because we don't spend time in parts of the Bible like this, it freaks us out. But there's more to the story. And first, Enoch. Enoch is taken up to heaven, and he's given a mission by God's heavenly council. They say to Enoch in Enoch, first Enoch 13, and Enoch, go and say to Asael, that's one of the watchers in prison, you will have no peace. A great sentence has gone forth against you to bind you. You will have no relief or petition because of the unrighteous deeds that you revealed and because of all the godless deeds and all the unrighteousness and the sin that you revealed to humans. Then I went and spoke to all of them together and they were all afraid and trembling and fear seized them. So the picture is this, these 200 watchers, sons of God, and there's a bunch of them have names in the book of Enoch, if you're interested in that. They're in prison in the center of the earth. They're bound with chains. And God calls Enoch to go down to the prison and proclaim to them their judgment. They have been defeated. They will not win. That's Enoch's message. So look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. 
See, Peter knows the book of Enoch. And he says, you know that story in Enoch where Enoch goes down to prison and proclaims the defeat to the angels? Actually, that's what Jesus did. Jesus died on the cross, which seems like a defeat. It seems like the enemy wins as the son of God is crucified. But then three days later, Jesus cannot be held by death. And so he is raised from the grave, conquers death and sin for humanity. And somewhere in that period, he goes down to the pit and proclaims not salvation, to these fallen angels, but victory over them. You, you started this, this plot to get in the way of God's plan all the way back in Genesis 6, and I'm just here to tell you, you lose. Peter sees Jesus as a theological analogy to Enoch. The watcher's plot fails. And notice at the end of the passage we read in 1 Peter, Jesus, the true human, is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. The one true human being, human beings are created lower than the angels we read in the Psalms, and the one true human being is given authority over them. So this weird story that not many of us have heard before that flows through this kind of fan fiction in the uh, late 200s and then gets incorporated into just the common knowledge of the time of Jesus and the ideas of which get placed in our New Testament, all super weird, but what are we supposed to do about it today? How are we supposed to walk away from this Sunday gathering encouraged and blessed by the Holy Spirit through his word? I've got three ideas for you. The first one is just to accept this reality. Human beings are not the only responsible parties when it comes to the brokenness in the world. We definitely are. We are sinful, broken people that do all kinds of wickedness but Genesis teaches us that we're not the only ones. And if you trust in Christ, you understand that there are dark things going on in the world. Invisible forces influencing people, organizations, and whole nations to wicked ends. And so for us, that means we just need to be aware of that. And that doesn't mean that there's a demon behind everything in the world that you don't like. I got a flat tire, so, you know, a demon did it. That's not, not helpful. C.S. Lewis has this to say. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Two opposite errors to say, all of this is crazy and I don't believe it. And another one to think there's demonic stuff happening under every bush. So that's number one. Just be aware of this reality. Number two, understand the war. We are participants in a great war. Now, the war has been won by Jesus on the cross. His enemies have no chance of victory, but they are still fighting. We need to recognize that these are the kinds of battles we face. Paul says in Ephesians 6, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may able, be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Listen to what Paul says here. People are not your enemy. And this is huge for us. 
People are the captives of the enemy. We are called as Christians to be a part of Jesus' work in setting captives free. And our enemy, like Paul says, is authorities and cosmic powers and rulers and spiritual forces. Those are all categories of divine beings. People are not your enemy. So how does that shape your view of people? People that you, that you know, that you don't like. People that you see on TV that aren't part of the right political camp. Just awful people like the Taliban or, or the, the leadership in North Korea or things like that. Like, do you see these people as your enemies or do you see them as held captive by the enemy? Because if you see people who are far from Christ as captives, that should generate compassion and care and love and grace in our hearts. We should be praying for people, not fighting against them and demonizing them. And maybe today you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here today and you're, you don't believe the gospel of Jesus. You are a captive of the enemy. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, talking about the job of a pastor. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, you are held captive by the devil, by the spiritual powers in this world. And you may not think that's true, but that's the reality according to God's word. And as Christians who have been rescued from the darkness and brought into the light, it is our job to go to bat for the people that are captive, to bring them hope and love and grace and truth. People are not our enemy. The spiritual powers are. So be aware, understand the war we're in. And then number three, lastly, rely on your savior. Christian, Jesus has defeated the schemes of the enemy. The seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis chapter three has come. He has defeated the powers and the principalities. He has gone down to the pit and proclaimed victory over them. And he has won you back from the clutches of the devil. Colossians 1 says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So don't freak out. Like there's so much going on in the world and our default is fear and anxiety and uncertainty. And that's normal and I get it. But Jesus has got this covered. First John says, you are from God, little children. And you have conquered them the enemy, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And we talk about all the things that are going on and, and the nations and the, the UN and the politicians and all of the things and the wars and what's going to happen. Jesus is going to win. That's what's going to happen. No matter how dark tomorrow looks, our king has defeated the enemy. And we are on the winning team. As we close this morning, I want to tell you a story. Some of you know this story. You were here with us in 2018 when we started renting this building. We, uh, we, we moved in a few weeks before we started doing our Sunday gatherings to just kind of get situated and, and put stuff where it needed to go. And, and at the time, it was, a, it was a wedding chapel still. It was a very different sort of wedding chapel. It had been run 
um, by a, a, a woman for about 25 years. And um, we didn't know this at the time, but she, there was some sort of zoning thing where she needed to have a church in here to make her business legal, which we helped her out with that, I guess. But um, so there was a series of, of small churches that rented the building over the course of however many years. And at one point, kind of through talking with people in the community, we learned about a church that was doing some pretty crazy, wicked spiritual stuff here. And it wasn't very long before, I'm, a, I'm, a fairly, um, I'm very, fairly blind to spiritual things in general, but it wasn't long before some of the more spiritually attuned people in our congregation went like, hey, you know what? There's something wrong with this building. There's something going on here. And I, I just kind of went, huh, that's, that's weird. And then I got to talk with our landlady and, and she said, oh, have you met the ghosts that live in the basement? <laughs> and I said, no, tell me more. <laughs> and she said, well, there's these six ghosts and they live in the basement and they're pretty harmless. Sometimes they, they shut the lights on and off and they annoy me, but, but we're pretty chill. And, and I was concerned. Um, <laughs> But as we continued to meet here, it became pretty evident that there were some spiritual forces, honestly, living in the basement, I think, from the time of this other uh, spiritual organization that was doing nefarious things here. And, you know, we, we didn't freak out about it, but we just decided, you know what, we're going we're gonna to gather here every Sunday morning and um, we're going to sing. We're going to proclaim the name of Jesus. We're going to announce his victory over the powers over and over and over again. And after a while, they left. Used to be you go down to the basement and it was weird. I mean, it's still weird, but it's a different kind of weird in the basement if you've ever been down there. But that sense that there was just a dark presence in this place, it found some other place to live because of the faithfulness of God's people just standing in this place and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And so if, if you're wrestling with this idea of, of demons and supernatural powers and things, just know that we have no reason to fear because our king has defeated the darkness. And simply, <laughs> the proclamation of his name brings fear into the hearts of his enemies. So, any questions? <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Question number one. If Noah and his family were the only survivors of the flood, how did the Nephilim's genealogy continue after the flood? Okay, so we're going to talk about this a little bit more as we get into the flood, but there's two ways to handle this. Either one, there's another group of supernatural beings that commit the same kind of sin after the flood and repopulate the Nephilim. And so you might say, well, like, why didn't they get thrown in prison? Well, God tends to... Um, react harshly to the first in instance of sin. If you think about the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, like they, they come and they, they give uh, their, they sell some property and they give the money to the church and it's their money and they can do what they want with it, but they try to pu uh, pull it over the apostles that they gave the entire purchase price to the church. And so they're trying to be deceptive. And what happens to them? God strikes them dead. It's a very intense story. So then the question is, why doesn't God strike everyone dead who tries to deceive the church? Well, I think it's because God is making an example in that very first instance to say, this is not how we do this in God's house. And, and so you could argue that with the Nephilim, God is saying, this is not okay. And he makes a very big statement and puts an end to it, but it happens in the future again. 
That's one way you could look at it. Another way you could look at it is to understand the flood as a more regional event instead of a global event. And for some of you, you might say, well, how is that even possible? The flood is clearly global, but there are faithful Christian people who have a different reading for the the flood narrative and, and have a view that the flood was big, but it was localized to the Mesopotamian area. I'm not going to say any more about that right now. We're going to get into that a little bit more as we talk about the flood. But that would be one way to see the line of the Nephilim um, continuing. Next question. Maybe a bit of a rabbit trail, but God sends the Israelites to a land. They doubt God and God's will changes from the Israelites to their children going into the land. How can God be the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow if his will is not? How can we call God's will perfect if it changes? Would that not make one will less perfect than another? I think that depends on how you understand the idea of God's will. I think you could argue that God's will was that the Israelites would trust him, that they would be faithful, that they would go into the land. That was, that was what he wanted. But that's not what they chose to do. And so if, if you understand God's will as, as something that is um, irrefutable, God wants them to go into the land, so they're going to go into the land, well, then obviously that, that's not how it worked because humans have a will as well. And these humans walked away. So God is constantly moving towards the same goal throughout the scripture, right? To, cre- to reconstitute a family of his people. But he's going to work with broken human after broken human after broken human until Jesus comes and does it all right. Since God, I believe, knows everything, I think he, he knew what was going to happen when the Israelites entered the land and saw the giants and ran away. He wasn't surprised by that. But I think he would have rather they not reacted that way. He said the first century Jews would know this story well as a tribute to the corruption of mankind. Is this what Paul nods to in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says women should cover their heads because of the angels? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, um, Paul's talking about modesty. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's what I would consider a, a very culturally specific modesty in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, there's a really fascinating rabbit trail that we're not going to go down about that whole passage, but I think that line about the angels probably connects to that somehow. Uh, let's see. What's this next one? Did you think the, do you think the book of First Enoch could have been influenced by Greek mythology, or did First Enoch come before Greek mythology? Yeah, so it's kind of hard to say. I mean, it used to be that, that scholars tried to like put a very clear timeline on like, well, this was written first and then these people copied this and stuff. But it's really hard to get a good grasp on that in the ancient world. There's all of these ideas that are just kind of swirling around and they're swirling around from a lot of different places. Like I said, Babylon and Persia and Greece and, and Rome later. And, and we, we see like ancient Hittite things and Canaanite um, stories, and they all have these kind of similar flair to them. And so it's, it's really hard to say if whoever wrote First Enoch was like really into Greek mythology and borrowed from that, or if he's borrowing primarily from um, scriptures and then other Greek writings or other Jewish writings, because it's all kind of a mishmash together. It would have been um, a lot like, you know, if, if you, if you, if you think about movies today, you can, you can watch a movie and, and there's a character arc that's kind of similar to another movie. Well, does that mean that this director copied that director? Well, sometimes they probably did, but, but sometimes it's just these ideas are just in the water and everybody just kind of pulls from them and uses them. 
And so I think that's kind of what the context of First Enoch is more like, is that it would have just been a common understanding of this is what happened a long time ago in the ancient world in some sense. And every culture kind of had their own spin on it. Last one. Is this topic related to UFOs and similar phenomenon? Yeah, so there's a group of Christians that really try to make a strong tie between UFOs and the Nephilim. And, and so, and it, it's based on this idea that not only were the Nephilim back then, but this kind of demonic half-breed thing is happening now. And usually it's like the Nephilim are like in the U.S. government because everybody hates the U.S. government. And they're like doing DNA experiments on embryos and it, it gets pretty wild. Um, I would say that, that there's little to no evidence that that's true. <laughs> so if that's your jam, um, look into it, but probably don't look into it because <laughs> I think it's pretty speculative. But, but yeah, they, they use some of those, those ideas. If you, if you watch a lot of the History Channel, which, man, the History Channel, um, that comes up quite a bit. Um, yeah, okay. Good questions, guys. <laughs> Next week, we're going we're gonna to finish off that section in chapter 6 and continue on into the flood narrative and, uh, and begin to see some real consequences to this, that there are some real wicked things going on, and it, it was so much so that God says he is deeply grieved and he can't um, continue letting this happen. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit next week, but for now, we're going to take communion. Uh, communion reminds us that Jesus gave his body and his blood, his human flesh up for us on the cross. And he gives it to us pure and holy, uncontaminated by the schemes of the enemy. And he invites us to participate in the life that he has won for us on the cross. He has cleansed us from our sin, that he has defeated the enemy and he has conquered death. And so we're going to um, sing. I'm going to invite you to come up and take the bread and the cup back to your seat and just reflect on the fact that you, Christian, are in Christ. You are protected from everything human or otherwise that goes on out in the world. And we can, we can trust and hope in the power of Jesus over all of these things. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.